Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife. Uh, today, we have a very exciting episode to you coming from uh, Columbia and New York City. Um, we have Dr. Cato with us and one of his fellows, uh, Peter Lowe. Uh, Peter, uh, please uh, tell us a little bit about your, uh, your boss, Dr. Cato. Hey, guys. My name is Peter. I am a surgery resident at Columbia University. Um, I finished three years of general surgery residency, and over the last two years, I've been having the privilege of doing a dedicated fellowship in intestinal and multivisceral transplants with Dr. Cato. He is the chief of abdominal transplant at Columbia, where he is a leading liver transplant surgeon, but his true passion is in the management and transplantation of patients with intestinal failure. So from his experience then as a transplant surgeon, he's also pioneered a procedure which is known as ex vivo surgery, um, in which he removes hard to reach tumors um, by taking out the tumor with the associated organ, and then he resects that on a back table, and then the now tumor-free organs are retransplanted or auto-transplanted back into the patient. Um, it's been a busy but incredible, incredible few years, and I've learned so much and experienced a whole lot. Okay. First of all, uh, thank you very much for including me in this uh, very, very exciting uh, uh, podcast. Um, so I, I was trained in Japan, most of my surgical resident. Um, I graduated medical school in um, Osaka and I stayed in Osaka area uh, for the general surgery training. Then I joined the fellowship um, in Miami, which is a multi-organ transplant fellowship, including liver, intestine, um, um, liver, liver, kidney, and pancreas. And intestine transplant was also part of the fellowship training. Um, so, so that was my training background, and I uh, became an attending in Miami and stayed there for about 13 years before I moved to Colombia. Wow. And, and what, were, uh, what made you want to go into uh, transplant surgery and specifically uh, multivisceral? How, how did you kind of get led down this track? Well, the very, very first time um, that I was in the, into the um, the transplant surgery was uh, just by coincidence in a way um, because I was looking for a um, some speciality that I wanted to come to the state for um, in Japanese surgical training. It's not so bad, but um, there are a few things missing in Japanese surgical training. One is a vascular surgery because there's not that much atherosclerotic disease in Japan and also transplant surgery because of the organ donation issue back then. So that was about 1995. I was asking for my uh, um, professors about uh, um, whether I should do a vascular surgery or transplant. And I went to uh, ask the vascular surgery professor, and he was that then um, very busy. He asked me to come back in a month. And then a uh, transplant professor just wrote me the recommendation right away. That's mm -hmm. how I decided to transplant. <laughs> so, so that was the entry to transplant. And then uh, uh, transplant really fascinated me um, the more I do the transplant, I really, really into it. Uh, even now, after more than 1,000 liver transplant I perform, I still feel really interested in every case uh, that I do liver transplant. 
Um, but also, um, Miami was another place, a uh, place for a, another uh, organ uh, um, transplant, which is intestinal multivisceral transplant. And it was very much pioneer um, in Miami. Um, the first 100 multivisceral transplants were done in Miami. Uh, so that was a big experience that back then um, that the many other places had experience for. Um, and then I, I was into that transplant, particularly I was doing more for the children. Um, and recently, the, you know, the TPN management has so much better. So it's not that many children goes into liver failure, but early on, whoever born with a congenital um, intestinal disease with no function of the bowel, they tend to go into liver failure early. So those are the patients that we are treating. And it was a really, really challenging transplant, but I was in charge of that program uh, I was running the program in Miami and then um, really um, um, made a lot of contribution to the early um, development um, of the uh, formal transplant. Wow. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges of uh, coming from a uh, training program in Japan and, and going straight into fellowship in the United States? Did you, did you have any uh, difficulties with that or was it pretty smooth? No, no, the def- definitely the language. The English yeah. was the, a problem. Um, you know, I was able to do surgery, but I wasn't able to communicate in the English and the language in the same level that, you know, usual PGY-5 or PGY-6 level should have, um, should do. Um, so, so that was really, really difficult. And, and, um, but I found it really um, fair in this country in a way because – if you don't have a communication skill, you are not, You are nobody. You are nothing. Right. They don't really judge from what you have before. But, um, you know, the other side of that is that if you show what you have um, and if you prove, you really don't um, have much of an issue with where you came from. Um, so when I first started the fellowship, I probably was far behind with others because of the language skill. And then um, when I finished the fellowship, um, you know, I was already uh, offered a job. And then from there on um, till now, I think I progressed very uh, quick. Um, so, so in that sense, it was difficult at the beginning, but I, I really uh, felt fortunate and also feel uh, um, good about the system here that people really don't judge by the background. That's fantastic. Well, uh we were hoping to hear a little bit about some of your research before we dive into some of the details of the surgeries you perform. I, I know you're very involved in surgical research, especially in the, in the fields of transplantation and rejection. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit um, some of the exciting things going on in, in those fields. Yes. Okay. So the uh, intestinal multivisceral transplant, I was one of the early pioneer of this field. Um, Intestine rejects really the worst. Uh, so the bowel rejection is really terrible when it goes to certain level stage, past the stage, you really can't take it back. And then the um, patient usually dies or organ has to be removed. Um, but, you know, over the years that uh, we discovered something very interesting. So if you just put intestine alone, that rejects the worst. But if you put intestine and liver, reject a little less. If you put intestine and liver and pancreas, reject the least. Uh, so the more organ you replace, that seems to reject less in intestine. And somehow you get liver, pancreas, and intestine, but intestine is only one that rejects. Liver, pancreas does not reject at all in this organ set. 
Um, so you really have to focus on the management of intestine, but the management of the intestine, particularly for the rejection portion, gets easier the more organ you put in. So that's sort of um, the background of my uh, research to figure out why that happens. Um, it seems to be a lot of things still going on, but uh, some kind of tolerance induction happens with removal of the lymphatic system and replace with the donor. So the balance between the donor lymphatic system and the recipient lymphatic system makes those children to be more prevalent. And then we are really, I continued this research and came to Colombia about 10 years ago and then continued with the local team with an um, excellent, fantastic group of immunologists. And then um, we are getting to really uh, nail down to that the cause and the uh, phenomenon. It seems to be a lot of cell-to-cell, uh, uh, -cell, the lympho lymphocyte interaction is going on, and it seems to be making them more tolerant. Okay, so we pretty much started from human and stayed on human. Um, so there's really not that much other model that we've used in this one. Uh, the reason is that um, the tolerance has always been achieved in mouse. You know, if you want to be, if you want to really achieve the organ, the transplant tolerance, immune tolerance, you, you know, you have to be a mice and then you have it already. So, so in that sense, the small animal model doesn't really help much in, you know, um, um, exactly, uh, find out what happened in the human model. So some non-human primates model probably still works, but, you know, we haven't really done much. Uh, the non-human primate. We now finally started some POSI model. We just got the grant approved and uh, uh, starting to uh, investigate some of the things that we discovered in human back in a POSI model. Um, but we really started all the time with human and then uh, not that much of other animal model. Um, now, can you maybe just talk us through, you already kind of uh, started talking about, you know, the more organs we transplant, uh, the better the patient does. Now, can you talk us through the indications for uh, an ex vivo uh, uh, liver and maybe intestinal surgery? Like, why, why would you do a, an ex vivo liver uh, operation? Okay. Okay. So, the ex vivo surgery is really not the allotransplant. Allo so, ex vivo surgery is the technology we used from the organ transplant. So, it's kind of, we, we call it technical byproduct. So the organ transplant technology made us to preserve the organ outside of body possible for a certain period of time. And then the organ doesn't have to have a blood supply during that time in a cold preservation um, uh, environment, right? So, um, so this came up from um, the idea, uh, it's not necessary, it's not my invention, but the original idea was from uh, um, um, kidney surgery that uh, traumatic injury for the kidney or some of the arterial aneurysm of the kidney, um, instead of repairing inside you, um, the, the surgeons come up with the idea to take kidney out and repair and then put it back. So that was the original, very original ex vivo surgery. And that was also used the transplant technology. And then the second uh, organ that ex vivo surgery was done is a uh, is liver. And uh, um, that was uh, done uh, first time in uh, 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 the German uh, people, German group, Hanover group. Um, they also um, used that technology, a organ transplant technology, to take the liver and tumor out of the body and cut the uh, tumor out in the blood field and put it back as if you are doing organ transplant. Um, so my mentor in Miami, uh, Dr. Andres Zakis, uh, started to do this in intestine. 
so which was a um, mesenteric root tumor. So mesenteric root tumor involving um, SMA and SMV, and it's usually a big size, um, try to cut it inside you, uh, you really can reach, first of all, not easy to reach the tumor and then um, um, remove it completely, but also the intestine um, has a too much long ischemia time and end up having a bowel necrosis. So for that particular uh, purpose, um, um, he started to do, to take organ, uh, take the intestine and the tumor out, out of the body, and then cut the tumor and put the intestine back in as if you're doing intestinal transplant, an autotransplant. So that was the third organ that uh, uh, autotransplant was done. And an exterior surgery always couples with this autotransplant. So then one day, um, I got the patient um, who had the tumor involving both SMA and a celiac, and it was aortic tumor. It was sarcoma on the aorta, and it has the celiac artery, and an SMA is completely um, involved in the tumor. And also, um, the both sides of the renal artery was also involved in that. So just cutting the tumor out, you obviously would cause uh, organ necrosis, uh, not only that, you really can't reach the tumor with the organ in front of you. So that time we came up with the idea, well, we do a multi-organ transplant, meaning that we get uh, stomach to a colon, um, liver, pancreas, all this together to go um, to uh, procure and then um, transplant uh, to a patient. It's been done successfully. So why not do a multi-organ uh, autotransplant was the exceptional resection. So that was the, um, um, the uh, sort of the um, final sort of phase, ultimate uh, um, um, uh, form of exvivo uh, um, surgery, multi-organ exvivo surgery. So we took pretty much entire abdominal viscera out and then completely empty, and then flush the organ with the pres uh, preservation solution as if you do an organ transplant. And then they cut the tumor and then put um, the reconstruct the vessel. You know because the reason why we can't take the tumor out is because the blood vessel involvement. So that has to be reconstructed by something. In the first, the very first case, we use the Gore-Tex synthetic material, um, and then um, uh, reconstructed it first and put it back. Um, so that was the uh, um, the sort of uh, time frame and uh, evolution of the ex vivo surgery. How many places, I, you know, I've honestly had never heard of this until we were reading uh, about your bio. Is this being done at most major transplant institutions or is this a very uh, specific procedure to only a few? Yeah, it's still very specific. So the liver ex vivo has been done in many different places. Many though, it's probably not many, many, probably handful. The very active center, one is in uh, uh, Oslo, Norway. Um, doing this uh, exivo surgery, um, mostly in the liver. And then uh, um, the surgeon in the, uh, San Diego used to do that too. I don't know how many he does, but he is still doing um, the liver exivo surgery. So there's some, some surgeons doing liver exivo surgery for the very, very uh, tumor that the outflow challenge cases, the tumor that blocks the hepatic vein outlet. Um, uh, so, but intestine exivo, um, I'm not too aware of many places that um, have been uh, continued to do. I know some several places have done uh, one or two, uh, including uh, Cleveland Clinic um, um, in Ohio um, and some other institution. 
Um, so I, I would say this is still early stage of evolution. Um, so the intestine, including ex vivo, uh, primary comes to our center. Um, and a multivisceral ex vivo is, so far, is the, we are the only center been performing it uh, as far as I know. Um, but, you know, we've been, uh, we've been really getting the nice uh, track record for long-term survival. So I think this is something that um, can be um, incorporated in um, um, very extreme end of, very extreme end of the surgical practice. Right. What are the, the limitations on the types of cancer? I, I imagine for adenocarcinoma, this would not be an option. Um, is, what are the main tumors that you're using this for? That's a great question. So as, I think the less malignant, the better. Um, um, there are some cases of very strange uh, benign tumor. Uh, one of the surgery I done was a ganglioneuroma and happened to be in a hepatic hilum. And then all the blood vessels are, are in the tumor and um, um, thrombosed. That particular patient had a childhood history of a, a neuroblastoma and radiation, so it's most likely that has caused that. So that was a benign tumor, but you can't really treat the tumor without the surgery uh, of removing it. And then she was having, uh, you know, the um, GI bleeding uh, risk with no chance of, you know, uh, decompressing it. So that kind of tumor is probably the best. But there's not that many benign tumor that really needing this surgery. So I'm just giving, I just gave you a little bit of example of, you know, how those benign tumor could still need a need a sub type of surgery. So the second best is probably a low-grade sarcomas. Um, so inflammatory myofibroblastic tumor, uh, it's one of the uh, longer, long survivor cases of multivisceral um, ex vivo surgery. And then sarcoma with a low-grade sarcoma, um, I think those are probably the best target. And like you just said, adenocarcinoma is probably not the best. Um, although there are some cases that uh, uh, the margin-free resection makes a difference. Um, you know, pancreas adeno is probably obviously not the good one. Uh, because of the biological nature is so harsh. But if they are locally invasive, very stable for a long time with chemo, that might be a possible target. But I do say um, much more locally invasive, uh, low-grade sarcomas are probably the best target and some benign disease with some uh, issue of the vessels that um, need in the surgery. Wow. Uh what is the most technically challenging uh, portions of these cases? Yeah. So the, the most technically challenging portion is that once you took, take the organ out, once you take the organ out, you can't really take it back, right? So you have to do that case. However, though, if the blood vessel involvement is in a big blood vessel, it's relatively easy in a way to reconstruct, right? But if the secondary branch, up to secondary branch, probably it's okay. You can still do reconstruct his Y graft or sacrifice one and then just reperfuse the other, right? But when it goes to tertiary branch or even further, it is really totally irreparable, right? So you are trying to do this surgery to get the margin-free resection. And if you can achieve the margin-free um, uh, on ice, then um, you discover that and it's not possible, then you're really, really screwed, right? So to determine if that's really feasible, um, the, before to take the organs out is the, is the uh, most difficult, challenging part. So we do a lot of imaging study. 
We do a intraoperative assessment, um, but it's pretty much the first um, uh, few hours to sometimes it's a major portion of the surgery is to just to figure out, um, you know, the resectability even with ex vivo. Wow. Uh, what would you say the average uh, length of one of these surgeries are and how long is the organ, um, you know, in cold um, ischemia? Yeah. So the cold ischemia of the organ has never been actually much of an issue. Um, we've been uh, being able to reperfuse in a few hours at the most, um, three, four hours. Um, but um, if you just think about how many hours the organ can tolerate, organ can tolerate up to 12 hours easily. You know, some of the organs may not be that long, but, you know, it could be maybe 8, 10 hours. Um, but a patient with no liver, like an unhepatic phase to be 8 to 10 hours is really hard. So in that way, the time that you have to see, um, the timeline, to the, the, um, the more restriction and limitation could be on the recipient size rather than the organ side. Uh, recipient meaning autotransplant recipient, the patient side. Um, so the time that organs out and then the fun part, essentially that's the fun part of the surgery, you know, um, uh, but that part is relatively short. So the residents and uh, uh, medical students wants to watch the surgery, but they usually miss it because that doesn't come that quickly. And it's usually in the middle of the night and, uh, and it just passed so quickly. Um, uh, but, um, the long hour before to take the organs out and then after that, it, it bleeds quite a bit because we have to fully heparinize the patient. And because we are a lot of time we're using synthetic material, synthetic graft. So from there, it's really long. So the first few cases of uh, ex vivo, um, entire abdominal organ ex vivo took more than 24 hours. Um, we are getting better at it. So the time is cutting down to 12 hours. Um, I don't know, Peter is out now, so I can probably say something a little bit um, more. I think he knows the more realistic number, but I think we have seen some cases less than uh, 12 hours lately, but most cases are still more than 12 hours. Wow, that is quite a heroic effort, um, but definitely advancing the science. Uh, one last technical detail. I always, you know, as a doing liver resections just for cancer and things of that nature, the hardest part of the case is managing the hepatic veins. Uh, how do you take, do you just take the, like, like in a liver transplant where you just take part of the IVC with the liver out and then reconnect the IVC or how, how that, how is that part done? Yeah. So it all depends. All depends on the, uh, mm. the area, the tumor. If the tumor is involving the root of the vessel, root of the artery, like hepatic artery, uh, and the common hepatic artery level, there's really not that much reason to take the IVC out. So we do like complete re uh, mobilization of the retrohepatic vena cava and then just cut small cuff of the big veins. Um, but if it's not the case, um, there's some tumor involvement close to the vena cava, then we just replace the vena cava completely with the Gore-Tex. In a liver tumor cases, are mostly we uh, replace the vena cava with Gore-Tex. Wow. That is quite interesting. Well, since we're discussing heroic efforts today, um, as, which seems to be the focus of your practice, I was wondering uh, if you could tell us um, about 
there, there's two things I wanted to hear about. There's one uh, in, in the news about the six organ auto transplant that you performed. And, and I was also hoping to hear about the procedure called APOLT that you helped pioneer. Okay. Yeah. So the, the six organ transplant was uh, already, we've been talking about. Um, the six organ is just how to count the organ is a kind of thing that, you know, uh, media likes. We don't necessarily do the same way. But, you know, if you count the one organ is the stomach, pancreas, liver, spleen, a small bowel and a large bowel that con- that that's essentially six organs, right? Um, but this means um, essentially um, the uh, entire area of the SMA and uh, uh, celiac artery supplying organs. Uh, so those are the tumors that involve in both arteries, celiac and SMA. Right. And then um, um, to do that surgery, uh, you really have to take all these organs out. So, so you know, um, the audience here is a surgical audience, so know really well about the vascular anatomy. Uh, so it's essentially right hemicolon to the level of, uh, uh, you know, um, mid-transverse to a uh, um, the splenic flexure. We usually cut it in the mid-transverse because that's the SMA area. And an IMA will have to be kept intact so that the IMA will perfuse the rest of the colon. Um, and then uh, you mobilize the spleen and pancreas completely from the retroperitoneum. You cut the stomach uh, in a GE junction. Um, so then you see mm-hmm. all this uh, foregut uh, up in the air, right? It's only connected with the celiac. And then, like you said, that um, um, if the vena cava is replaced, um, uh, in the case uh, that needed to be replaced, we just uh, cross cramp the vena cava above right. and below the liver. And if you cramp um, the celiac right. and uh, SMA at its root, essentially all the organs will just come out, right, unblocked. And the tumor is in somewhere, right? Tumor is in somewhere. depends on the tumor. Um, most tumors are pancreatic tumor um, in this um, needing the ex vivo surgery. Um, so so th- that's the sixth organ set we are talking about. Um, essentially, that's the major SMA celiac involvement. If it's only liver part of the involvement, it's a liver ex vivo. If it's only SMA, it's an intestine ex vivo. And we have done some other uh, in-between cases with a pancreas, like a Whipple and a liver ex vivo, or the Whipple and intestine ex vivo uh, for the pancreatic head tumors. But um, um, the sixth organ is really the one that involves both celiac and SMA. Um, the first case was done in Miami. Um, it was a sarcoma case. She did well for about four years, and she had a brain tumor. And then, uh, in the end, that she had a brain tumor resection. And uh, um, after that, she didn't uh, do well. So that was the first case. And the second, third cases were done in Colombia, um, and it was a uh, children. And both of them are still doing well. One of them are more than eight uh, eight years now, uh, but those are relatively benign cases. Um, my uh, inflammatory myofibroblastic tumor in one, and his other is a hemangioendothelioma case. Um, and then a few other cases that we've done. Um, the most recently, we've done a case with also sarcoma in a um, ex vivo resection, um, or six organ ex vivo resection as well. So we still continue doing those um, cases. Um, but those are, it's not that many, many cases we've done yet. Um, going to the apoto surgery, which is a very different topic, um, but it's a... Uh, one, one quick thing I wanted to ask you before we go into that. Um, 
at, when you when you started your transplant training, did you ever see yourself morphing into a at least part time surgical oncologist, or is this has this been sort of a slow transition um, into doing both? Yeah, it's again, it's a really good question. So, um, in a U.S. centers, uh, most centers are transplant. Either transplant and surgical oncology are separate, right? Transplant and surgical oncology are separate. Um, because it's a organ transplant is a one unit. It's not the organ specific unit. Organ transplant unit includes liver and kidney transplant. But most other places in the world, including Japan, are more organ specific. So the unit of surgery is a liver unit. Liver unit does liver resection, surgical oncology, and the liver transplant. Urology does the uh, urology um, oncology and the kidney transplant. So those are more common division actually across the world. And the U.S. is a lot unique in that sense. The organ transplant was so specific, partly because the organ transplant volume is so big here. Um, so I was not necessarily uh, thinking myself to just becoming the transplant mm -hmm. surgeon. At the same time, I was also always interested in uh, liver uh, uh, oncology cases because most of my uh, Japanese friends are doing like that. They are liver transplant surgeon as well as the surgical oncologist. Um, so I didn't really have that strong um, um, feeling that, you know, going into oncology surgery was something totally extra for me. Um, but in fact, in the U.S., it wasn't so easy to get in. Um, then I started to get more referral for uh, challenging cases mostly, so people don't do, you know, most other surgeons don't do. So that's sort of, uh, I started to evolve my reputation and develop my reputation. Actually, the very interesting first um, surgical oncology cases that came to me was a uh, um, patient with a uh, pancreatic uh, uh, neuroendocrine tumor, um, supposed to have SMA involvement and wasn't uh, operable and was uh, um, treated in some other uh, very well-known institution and turned uh, deemed unresectable. Then, um, you know, when I first uh, saw the patient, I was still very young, um, not really uh, known at all that time, but I really thought that was resectable by just looking at the image. And then um, um, even if the SMA reconstruction necessarily, if it's a neuroendocrine, it's still worth doing. So we just, uh, you know, take the patient to surgery and then found out there was no SMA involvement. We just did a regular distal pank. And the patient did so well, and patient referral physician was so excited. You know, this guy can do something that nobody else can do. And then he started sending me a lot of patients. So it was the very first time was actually not really um, that I needed to do anything. Um, but, you know, maybe there's an interesting point in that, that um, in a patient sometimes comes with the old record of uh, uh, medical record, and then somebody said what? And then uh, those sometimes is just... Um, stick with the patient. So for you to do something um, um, different from what other authoritative people, the authority has done and said, is really difficult. But if you look at it in your own eyes and try to, uh, you know, um, dissect further um, um, to maybe even suspect and have a doubt on something that have done in the past may not necessarily true, if you have that eyes to look at the cases, you know, sometimes you may discover something like that. 
And um, so in a way, it was a luck that I started to get that reputation. But from there on, you know, a lot of challenges cases come to me and then uh, uh, we end up uh, doing ex vivo, uh, multi-organ ex vivo surgery. Um, so, so I think um, um, it's, there may be an important lesson there um, to just don't um, accept no as an answer as a first time and try to doubt, try to, you know, give a little bit more time to uh, suspect there might be something else can be done. Great. Uh, one question I had is, do you guys have, have, have you ever had this recorded, one of your ex vivo procedures that is available to see anywhere? Or is it not quite there yet for uh, video recording? So there is one um, ex vivo surgery was broadcasted through the uh, OR Live. I don't know if the OR Live makes it available for an archive longer time, but there was one case that is uh, that was um, uh, available through the um, OR Live, um, and um, um, we are uh, making a video for multivisceral ex vivo. Um, we have done one case of intestine ex vivo video. Uh, we'll see if that uh, can be accepted and a presentation that maybe we can show. Um, but the multivisceral ex vivo, the most recent cases were fully recorded. So we are trying to um, make that into also publication at some point. Absolutely. That'd be great. Well, I, yeah, I, I apologize to my listeners for bouncing around here as we've spent the majority of our dissection of the day talking about uh, ex vivo uh, organ transplantation, auto transplantation, and resection. Um, but I just did want to touch briefly on more of your, your work in just primary liver transplants. And when livers are failing, uh, one of the options apparently um, may be this APOLT procedure. Can you just give us the, the kind of Cliff Notes version of what that procedure is and, and how you came up with it? Sure. APOLT is A-P-O-L-T. So it's an auxiliary partial orthotopic liver transplant. Um, that essentially means that uh, you don't remove entire liver. In usual liver transplant, you remove entire native liver and replace it with the donor organ. So instead of doing that, cut the liver and uh, remove part of the liver and replace just a part of the liver with the donor partial liver. So the typical way is to cut the left lobe out and put the donor left lobe in there. So the recipient end up having two donor, two two um, livers from one from your own and the other from the uh, organ donor. Um, so what is this really done for? Um, we do believe that is the most useful, most uh, um, uh, fit, the suited for the uh, uh, fulminant hepatic failure, the acute liver failure cases. So acute liver failure, um, there are certain percentage of patients that got better and don't need a transplant. Right, um, but still do transplant um, when the diagnosis is clear and the patient is having encephalopathy because if we don't do that, they could go into brain death. Right, so the primary purpose of acute liver failure during the transplant is not because the liver is completely failed chronically, irreversibly. Even the liver could still be reversible stage. We do that to avoid the brain uh, damage. Um, so, so in that sense, if you can just support um, certain period of time with the transplanted organ um, and then avoid the brain injury, um, you may be able to keep your own liver and wait until the own liver re recovers. So that's the idea of APOLT and a fulminant liver failure. Um, 
So again, this was not my invention. It was uh, done in uh, European people first and uh, came to the U.S. in uh, uh, late 90s. That was uh, time around the time I just started the Liberal Transplant Fellowship. And uh, most series um, was not successful. So the, you know, pretty much everybody get to do one or two cases in a, uh, you know, a well-known institution, but didn't go well. And uh, so the, the surgery was abundant. And uh, in Miami, when I was a fellow, there was also one case done, and it was supposed to be abundant too because it didn't do well. The reason why it didn't do well was there was a lot of complication, and patient end up needing um, um, the like three months hospital stay with a bio leak and so much complication. And in the end, we didn't really uh, see any regeneration of the native liver. But that particular child, that was a child, went back to. Um, Elsewhere, I think it's Puerto Rico, I believe. And then uh, we completely lost touch with the patient. The patient came back to us in three years later without taking any immunosuppression. They just stopped taking immunosuppression. Then we did a scan. There was no transplant liver. It's completely disappeared. And he has his own liver back to, you know, pretty much normal stage. And in the biopsy, showed the normal liver. Um... So, so that was the time that I um, saw that this this is was trying again. So then we look at all the record of the previous literature and discovered one thing that if you really limit the case into certain age of children, it seems to be very successful. If you try to do it in adult or try to do it in a very young child, um, you know, it doesn't seem to work well. So we just uh, uh, set our um, 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 the ta- target uh, um, recipient for uh, less than 10 um, non-teenager children. Um, because it seems to be that case does really well on those. And also there are some success record in uh, uh, King, King's College UK and in some French series. Um, so, so we started to do that in uh, uh, the age group and it's really, really amazing. It's really amazing the regeneration capacity is so good, and we have so many patients off immunosuppression. But as you take off the immunosuppression, what interestingly is that the real interesting is that the liver just shrink. The um, uh, the transplant liver started to shrink. It's a flow competition, so the portal flow uh, is going to the native liver as well as transplant liver. But if the transplant liver started to suffer from rejection. You know, uh, the resistance goes up and the flow goes down, and a preferential flow goes to the native. So that really g- gives accelerated uh, atrophy, uh, the liver atrophy. So I don't really know how the liver really disappeared in the end, but you can just see a real remnant of uh, um, uh, scar tissue, fibrous tissue alone. Um, uh, so most cases, we don't even need to um, take up the transplant liver. Um, so it's, it's been really interesting. We've done a total of 14. Um, it's not really that many cases are suitable, first of all. And then we d- kind of discovered that less than one year old is probably not the perfect target. So then it's a fairly limited cases. Um, but those cases, if you got a fulminant hepatic failure, adding a polto uh, should be done. Can we really make the polto as a standard of care? It's, it's, a, it's still challenging. But I think we do think that Apolto to be, and that particular uh, selected uh, recipient, 
um, it can be considered a standard of care. So Dr. Cato, I think we're going to switch to our tips and tricks section now. And we've learned about many heroic procedures uh, that many of us will never uh, see or hear of again. Uh, one thing that is more common that we do see that you're very experienced with is uh, portal vein reconstruction. And I was just wondering if you could take us through uh, your approach to portal vein reconstruction, um, specifically in a case such as a cholangiocarcinoma. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, another part of my job is really surgical oncology, and I deal with uh, lots of cholangio and hepatocellular um, liver resection. So the cholangio, perihylar cholangio and the clad skin, um, um, it's really very important to know the hyalur uh, anatomy. So the liver hilum, um, there are a few things that you need to know where the artery, portal vein, and bile duct locates in what order. So close to the duodenum, what in order is that in back, is in the front, is in the right or left, and then going up where it is located, and where the bifurcation. So the artery bifurcates the closest to the duodenum, and the portal bifurcates the next, and bile duct bifurcates closest to the liver, right, in the, um, dur- in, inside the hepatoduodenal ligament. And the artery bifurcates the left side, most left, portal bifurcates more right, and the bile duct bifurcates to the most right side, right? So the bile duct bifurcation is really right on top of the right portal vein. So if you know this anatomy, um, then you get an idea of what I'm talking about, the portal vein reconstruction. This is essentially portal vein, combined portal vein resection for the Klatskin tumor. So the Klatskin tumor, the most important thing is really to get R0 resection. Whether you get R0 resection, Either lymph nodes positive, negative may you know um, uh, makes a huge difference in outcome, but you know surgical side um, for us to achieve the ultimate goal is really alveolar resection. So in order to optimize, maximize alveolar resection, you don't want to get close to the tumor. In a lot of tumors, in a bifurcation tumors, in a right on the bifurcation, but the left side of the bile duct shaft is relatively long. So you could still have a margin negative resection in doing the right trisegmentectomy. But uh, one challenge on that approach is really the, um, the portal vein. Because of the bile duct bifurcation, the tumor is sitting right on top of the right portal vein. So in order to dig in and cut the right portal vein, you may into, uh, violate into this uh, tissue that has the tumor, end up not being able to do R0. So in order to uh, have a safe R0 reconstruction, you rather cut the left portal vein and then reconnect the left portal vein into the main portal vein. So this is called non-touch technique. It's a standardized technique. So, um, you know, our, some center probably do it routinely. Some patients don't. Um, but that's a, a one um, technique that uh, you need to know and then you need to know the anatomy if you know the anatomy well enough, um, um, you can probably easily understand how to do it and why why you have to do it. Um, some technical detail on that um, was that um, if you try to do that, then um, cut and reconnect. Um, one thing that if you cut too short and too close to the left side and make it too short and it doesn't really reach or the, the, to the vessel is so friable inside the liver and it starts getting break, and then it's an issue. So you have to really make sure that you have a good enough margin but, uh, from the tumor, but also to have a good enough uh, um, tissue 
that you can still um, um, uh, reconstruct the portal vein for. Um, but I think uh, this is uh, one very important anatomical knowledge as well as the surgical uh, tips uh, to perform um, the clad skin tumor and right tricep and, and um, to achieve uh, R0 resection. Uh, for this, do you, are you able to um, do a primary end-to-end anastomosis? Yeah, it's end-to-end anastomosis is the best. You can do probably, um, you know, the side bite and then curve out port, port, right portal vein, but it, it usually doesn't really lie well. So I like end-to-end much more than the uh, um, that way. Because if you close down the portal vein in that way, usually it causes some kind of kinking and the flow is not optimal. And then uh, end-to-end, um, it reaches okay with uh, tension-free as long as you know, you know, uh, if you do cut too much, then end up needing something. But um, um, most cases, end-to-end, you have a good enough uh, um, um, way of reconstructing it. Uh, two last technical details. Uh, what is your first go-to um, if you do need an interposition? And number two, do you use any anticoagulation on these patients uh, after the surgery? Wait. So if there's no synthetic material used, there's no reason to do anticoagulation. And the go-to, the first, the best choice is really jugular vein for this kind of venous material. Some people describe the saphenous vein and make it the spiral way of doing that. That's a kind of Asian technique. Um, I'm not so sure if that's practically that useful because the saphenous vein is very firm. But, you know, um, that could be a good resource to avoid the neck vein retrieval. But um, if you have a good, um, you know, um, knowledge about how to uh, um, do a, the uh, jugular vein harvesting, I think the jugular vein probably does the best. All right. Well, thank you for that great dissection of the day. Now we're going to dive into our final five. These are five questions uh, to get to know you a little bit better. First question, do you listen to music in the operating room? Well, I don't. I don't listen to the music. So, you know, just, just so distract me so much on the music. I know the surgical team may want a music, but, you know, um, I can't. I just can't listen to the music because it's just distracting. Yeah, it's about 50-50 for us and whether uh, the guests listen to music. All right. (laughs) Question number two. What do you like to do outside of the operating room for fun? Um, I do do play some music. It's a classical music. I do classical guitar. um, And uh, I run. I wasn't really a runner at all until I came to New York. Um, I was playing golf and tennis and all these fun things. But, you know... Once you come to the city, you got to run. <laughs> it's like a New York thing. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite trip or vacation that you've been on uh, recently that you could tell us about? The recent tree, well, I don't know if it's, you know, um, uh, Barcelona, we went to Barcelona last year, summer. That was really great in Barcelona, but it was uh, right on the day that um, that the um, terror, terrorist attack happened. So we we saw something was funny because when we uh, get to the Barcelona station, um, there's really no cab. There's nothing, no cab. You can't find a cab. It's all disappeared. Then we get to the hotel and um, uh, you know heard that was happening. Then we thought that next day 
whether or not we should do side C. And but you know, it seems to be already quiet. Then why not just do it? And we went to the Sagrada Familia, that uh, famous uh, you know Gaudi art, and there was nobody there. So it was very very nice. You know, it's a very nice tour that we have. Perfect. You know, it's supposed to be very very crowded, and it's so easy, difficult to get in. But it was not at all. So. Wow, that must have been scary. But yes, Barcelona is quite a beautiful city. Now, our next question. What career would you be in right now if you had not pursued a career in medicine? Not in the medicine. Yeah, it's a good question. I haven't really thought about it, but I'm a teacher is one. Okay. Um, and a politician is the other. U.S. politics or Japanese politics? Well, it's a good question. You know, U.S. politics when, right? It's a question too. <laughs> um, okay, our final question. If you could go back in time and meet yourself on the first day of internship, what piece of advice would you give yourself? I think the internship beginning for me was all good. Um, although, you know, um, it was uh, not necessarily um, everything was the best learning environment uh, because in Japan, when I first started the day, uh, the nurses were really harsh. They were really harsh for it. <laughs> so, um, but we already knew somehow about it. Um, and I, I think uh, um, that uh, I would say, even though you have a real hard time in the beginning, um, uh, it, it all um, uh, turned out to be a um, good experience, uh, regardless of what it is. I guess, you know, though I, I, um, I was in that environment of uh, so tough nurses and environment, mm -hmm. that sort of mm -hmm. made me to uh, uh, do better in a later life. Um, so, so in a way, you know, even if it's a really nasty environment for intern, um, you may think that as a part of the training to become a better team player, better treating people, treating others in different ways. Definitely. Well, Dr. Kato, we can't thank you enough for joining us in Behind the Knife. We have learned uh, so much about many procedures that we didn't even know existed until today. Definitely. Well, we'll be in touch soon and hopefully have this published in, in the next month here. It was a lot of fun and a great honor. So thank you. Well, it was my pleasure too. Until next time, dominate the day. Yeah.